team. Thank you for leading the songs. I really enjoyed tonight the singing, and I wish we can continue to worship Him in songs and praises uh, during this Good Friday service. Uh, but time is limited. I hope tonight you will spend this time listening to what God has to say to us tonight. Uh, anyway, I have a message to deliver tonight. The title of my message is based on a question. The question is, why did Jesus have to die? And before I continue, let us pray. Father Lord, we are thankful to you tonight, Lord, that we can come uh, into your presence, recognizing, Lord, tonight, Lord, it's Good Friday, that you die on the cross for of us, Lord. And the question we have, Lord, why did you die for us? And tonight I hope and I pray that you will open our hearts and minds to be attentive to your words. I pray, Lord, for anointing the Holy Spirit on the message, O Lord. Thank you. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Now, if you have a little toddler at home, uh, sometimes they just ask questions that really annoy you. And uh, what are some of the most favorite words or phrases little toddler often say to adults? Are we there yet? I'm sure you have heard that before, right? When you're driving to a vacation and they kept asking you, are we there yet? So it's so common or better still. Whenever you say something to this little toddler, they will come back and ask you another question, why? And they kept asking why and why. Uh, do you have a clue why they ask the questions why? I posed these questions uh, to a group of parents once, and one of the parents gave me this answer. They asked the question why just to annoy you. I hope not, because we all love children. Personally, I think children ask questions why is because they are curious, and they want to know more about what you are trying to say, but there is one question tonight I'm going to ask. Why did Jesus have to die? There are lots of ways in which Christians have described Jesus' death. In fact, you can read that a lot. In, uh, you can Google them. People have many reasons. People would describe Jesus' death as a victory. That's true. When Jesus died, he defeated all the powers of evil. But how? How does dying on the cross mean that evil powers are defeated? Now, there are lots of people die on lots of other crosses, and they did, they did not defeat the power of evil. What makes Jesus' death so different? Then there are people who have described Jesus in this way. In order to deal with the problems in the world, it was deemed necessary for God to take on human flesh and to die. And that death will then be like a sacrifice offered to God or something offered to pay the penalty for sin or something like that. That might be part of the answer, but it leaves so many things unexplained. For example, God could have entered the world as a nomadic farmer and he could have been killed in an accident with a camel. Would that have dealt with all the world's problems? And then there are people who would describe the death of Jesus as an act of love. 
John 3.16 says this, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But that is about motive. It's about what motivated Jesus to go to the cross. But it does not explain why dying on the cross is an act of love. For example, two people are walking together by the river. One turns to the other and says, I love you so much, I'll do anything for you. And then he jumps in the river and drowns. Is that act of love? The answer is no. It is a pointless waste of life for that person. Again, two people are walking together by the river. One trips and falls, the other jumps in after him and brings him to shore. But then the second guy gets swept away and drowns and he dies. Is that an act of love? The answer is yes. So if Jesus' death was an act of love, then why? What did it, what did it achieve? Jesus was crucified between two other people. What makes his death different to these two other people? If God is a God of love, why would he ever let his own son die such a horrible death? There was no more terrible death than death by crucifixions. Even the Romans themselves regarded it with a shudder of horror. Cicero declared that it was the most cruel and horrifying death. Tacitus said that it was a despicable death. And I have a video to show you about the crucifixion of Jesus. And I have to warn you, okay, this, this is going to be uh, difficult for some of you to watch it, but I would really want you to watch it. And here's the video. <laughs> So they took charge of Jesus. He went out carrying his cross and came to the place of the skull, as it is called. In Hebrew, it is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And they also crucified two other men, one on each side, with Jesus between them. Pilate wrote a notice and had it put on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is what he wrote. Many people read it because the place where Jesus was crucified was not far from the city. The notice was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. 
the chief priests said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. What I have written stays written. After the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. They also took the robe, which was made of one piece of woven cloth without any seams in it. The soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's throw dice to see who will get it. This happened in order to make the scripture come true. They divided my clothes among themselves and gambled for my robe. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing close to Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. He is your son. Then he said to the disciple, She is your mother. From that time, the disciple took her to live in his home. Jesus knew that by now, everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there, full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine. his head and gave up his spirit. All right, that was a good, good video here. I have never been able to entirely shake this story out of my head. Why did God send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross? I'm going to borrow an illustration from a book I read uh, a couple of years ago. The, the book's title is called Sacrifice a Son. It was written by Dennis, Dennis Hensley. It says that once upon a time, there was a man who worked in a small town as the operator of a drawbridge uh, on a river. His job was to keep the bridge up when no train was coming so the boats and could pass underneath. When train approached, he was to blow the whistle and let down the bridge. One sunny Saturday morning, the man brought his seven-year-old son to work with him uh, so that the boy can play along the river or even catch some fish. Shortly before noon, he received a phone from a train engineer that the passenger train was due to pass through the area. 
Then the man began to make preparations to let bridge the bridge down. As he examined the bridge, he noticed that there was a small child had somehow climbed over the guardrail next to the bridge and was playing at the very spot where the bridge would come down. As he looked closer, he realized with horror that the child was indeed his own son. In desperation, he yelled out as loud as possible to his son's name, but the sound of the approaching train drowned out his screams. He knew he had to make a quick decision. If he lowered the bridge, now his son would die. He barely had time to think. As he screamed in agony, the man thrust forward the lever to lower the bridge just as the train arrived. His only son died instantly. And as the train passed by, the people just smiled and waved as they passed by the man in the control booth. With his head bowed low, oblivious to what he had just taken place. Now my mind <coughs> longs to finish this story with a different ending. Any other man would question the operator. Couldn't he have signaled the train? Couldn't he have thrown something at his son to gain his attention? Or couldn't he have yelled louder or blown a whistle? Did his son have to die to save the anonymous people on the train? Was there another option? Why did he care more about the passing strangers than his son? What would you have done if you were his, in his shoe? Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die? You might be able to give a Sunday school answer. Like, oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins. Or because that was God's will. But do you really understand exactly what that means? And how does his death affect you and me? In order to avoid sounding like a college textbook, I'm making two very bold statements tonight. The first statement is that the Bible gives an accurate account of the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is God's Son, part of the eternal trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is holy. He is perfect and true. In Him, there's no fault or wrong or evil, and I believe that. The Bible says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 48, it says that, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. My second statement tonight is this, is that all human beings are not perfect. Some of you may think that you are perfect, but let us be honest. You are not perfect. If you have doubt, just ask a friend or family member what they think about you. I, get, I think they, have, they will have a lot of things to say about you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This makes for a difficult paradox. On one hand, you have God who is perfect in every way, on the other hand, 
you have a world full of imperfect people. These things called free will will have seemingly ruined a perfect world. And since we are in the perfect world, we have been tainted by the world. And it's completely impossible for us as imperfect people to become perfect on our own. This means we cannot save ourselves. Even if you try to do all good works to redeem yourself, you still will fall short of God's perfection. And the scripture says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says that, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If God is perfect, how can we, how can we the imperfect human beings, be in the presence of a perfect God? The perfect and imperfect cannot live together. It's just impossible. The sinful and the sinless cannot share the same space. It's like light and darkness. If you turn the lights on in a dark room, the room no longer is dark. It has been what? Transformed into a room full of light. Here is the questions. How can a perfect God be reunited with his perfect creation that has been blemished by sin resulting in his imperfection? And to make matter worse, not all God's creation wants to be reunited with him. If sinful humanity wanted to commune with, perfect, with a perfect God, there must be a mediator that would unite him with them. Since sinful humanity is fully incapable of recon reconciling himself, this meant that if God wanted to commune with his creation, he would have to atone for our sin. He atoned. He alone would be the only one who could lead his creation into light. You know, the first car I bought in U.S. was a eight-cylinder old 1960 Ford Galaxy. Since it was my first car that I bought with my own money, I paid $550 for the car. That car meant the whole world to me because it was the first car I ever bought with my own money. It was old but drivable. Although $550 was not a lot of money when it compared to a brand new car. My $700 a month graduate assistance stipends afforded me to drive the car, pay for all the gas, and maintenance of the car. Over the course of several months, I replaced my car radio with a custom stereo uh, and all kinds of little minor changes to the car cool coolest factor. It was my right, and it, I was proud of it, my first car. So one weekend night, I drove my Ford Galaxy with two friends to see Sylvester Stallone movie, Rocky the Three. After arriving to the movie theater, I parked the car, locked the door, and went into the movie theater. When the movie was over, we walked out and to find my car. To my horror, my car was gone. I panicked, 
and I ran around the parking lot like crazy man. Uh, just maybe thinking that I forgot uh, where I parked. After a quick desperate search along with my two friends, it became clear to me that someone actually stole my car. I immediately went to a payphone booth, called the police. Half hour later, the police showed up and he made me fill up a complete report. The police were very sympathetic enough to give me a ride home. I was sad because the first car that I bought had been taken from me. I paid for it, I worked on it, I modified it, and I drove it around. It was titled in my name, and I was its rightful owner. But apparently that did not matter too much to someone who stole my car. Two days later, the police called to let me know that they had found my car. I was super happy, but not for long. The police told me that they did a good job. I don't know why they used the term good job, destroying my interior of my car. They yanked out my custom car stereo, the amplifier, cassettes, everything in the glove box compartments, totally gone. The car battery was gone too, and the front and the rear light were gone. It was all gone. The word is gone. When the police found my car, they had it towed to an impound lot because of policies. They cannot tow the car back to the uh, police stations. So I called my insurance company and agents, and they told me that the car would sit there until they had it towed to the auction or sent it to a scrap yard. I was really disgusted that they had even thought of sending my car to the scrap yard. I knew my insurance company would pay me, but I was curious. So I asked the insurance, my insurance agent if I could redeem my car. To my surprise, I was told that I can have my car, but I will have to pay, buy back my own car, and that is going to cost me. So they came up with this ridiculous explanation on the buyback cost. So they say to redeem my car, I had to come up with the money to pay for the towing charges, the impound fees, and other miscellaneous fees. It all added up to a few hundred dollars. The car was basically ruined. To the average person, it would have been a waste of time to redeem the car from an impound lot. But it was my car, and I wanted it. I did not see what it looked like sitting there on the block. I saw what it, I saw it once was and what it could be. The insurance company will have never released my car back to me unless I pay them their fees. Nobody else was willing to pay the price. And since I was the rightful owner, I was the only one who could redeem the car. So if I wanted the car back, I had to pay a, a debt. And I did not owe for a car that was already rightfully mine. I can only redeem the car with my own money to satisfy the debt the car had involuntarily acquired. I did not have to redeem my car. If I want to, I have to consciously choose to redeem my car. You see, we are all kind of like 
my decrepit car at the impound lot. We are desperate in need of a redemption from effects of sin because without redemption, we are all destined for eternal scrap called hell. So why would God redeem us? Because he loves you and me. Because why? We are his creation. And he longs for his creation to make the choice to love him back. He loves us so much today as the day we roll off the assembly line. The Bible says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So how does God redeem us? Through the God-man, Jesus Christ, God himself set aside many of his deistic characteristics and became human. A perfect God entered our imperfect world to reveal himself to us and atone for our sin so that you and I would not have to atone or pay for them on our own because that would be impossible. It's impossible for a sinful person to atone for their own sin. So God himself came and atoned for us. Just like my car could not redeem itself from the impound lot, you and I cannot redeem ourselves from a sinful state. Jesus paid for you with his life. This was God's plan. It wasn't something that Jesus made up. It was a plan of God. Long before Jesus ever stepped foot on his earth, on this earth, the Bible gave us the details of God's plan of redemption. Listen to the words that the prophet Isaiah wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is taken from Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6. And let me read that. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, a familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carry our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wound we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And also in the New Testament we read from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for, for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How did Jesus atone for our sins? Well, he atoned for our sins by shedding his blood on our behalf. The word atone means reconcile or satisfy. In other words, Jesus satisfied God's judgments of sin. He took one for you. So 
The long theological term is called substitutionary atonement, which means that Jesus died for sin, so we do not have to. His substitutionary atonement satisfies the judgment of sin and reconciles us back to God. Jesus literally takes our sins away so that we can stand sinless before our holy creator and enjoy spending all eternity in his wonderful presence. Hebrews chapter 9 verse, verses 26 to 28 says this, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Why did Jesus have to die? Question again. Because God wants to redeem you and me from our sins. And the only way to do that was to satisfy his own detest for sin himself. Jesus came to atone for our sins and the effects of sin-filled world so that we do not have to die from them. Through substitutionary atonement, Jesus paid your sin and redeemed you. Let me, take, let me make this very real and very practical. Because sin exists in the world, this world. You and I are part of this world, and we have been separated from our Creator. How sin originated will forever be a mystery, but the effects of it are obvious. Broken lives, addictions, illnesses, anxiety, eating disorder, loneliness, broken family, death, fear, and much more. But Jesus came to combat sins and gives us a new beginning. He came as a substitutionary sacrifice on you, on your behalf, so that sin does not have to plague your life. Although sin darkens our life, Jesus' redemption brought light to a new beginning for us. And whenever the light shines brightly, darkness goes away. I want you to see what substitutionary atonement means. I want you to see what Jesus came to do. A few years ago, television news captured the drama of a brave man who gave his life for others. A flight from Florida crashed into icy water of the Potomac River, a few feet short of the runway of the National Airport. Minutes later, rescue helicopter came and tried to uh, rescue these people, suddenly a lone man jumped into this icy water and lifted five people onto the ladder before disappearing beneath the wave. And someone wrote this. This man gave his life for those he did not know, but Jesus gave his life for those he did know. See, the difference between this person and Jesus, because Jesus knows your condition. 
That is the amazing part. Jesus knew us. Yet, despite what he knew, he gave himself as a ransom for us anyway. He did it out of love for us and in obedience to the Father. So here is a question again. Have you accepted God as a Savior? Are you willing to move out of the impound lot and into the life with God? See, God will never force you to receive what He has done for you. You can stay in darkness as long as you want, but the light has come into the world in Jesus. Romans 6.23 says this. The Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So are you ready to admit that Jesus came for you? It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how bad you have been or how far from God you have felt. You do not know everything about your kids, but you still love them anyway. What matters is that you make the choice to believe that Jesus Christ died for you. That you repent of your sins and give them to God. And that you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Romans 10, 9, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You can be set free tonight like everyone else here. God loves you very much that He sent His Son for you and atoned for your sin with His life. Do not let pride stop you from accepting Jesus as your Savior. Do not let anything get in your way of you making the decision to believe and accept the fact that God paid a debt you could not pay. If you want to, redeem, to be redeemed, this is what you need to do. You need to accept Jesus Christ into your life as a personal Savior. If you want to ask Jesus Christ to step into your life right now and redeem you from sin, silently pray along with me this prayer here. Dear Jesus, right now accept the fact that you died for my sins. You love me and have redeemed me. And I believe that what you did is true. Right now, Jesus, I invite you to come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.